The Lord be with you. Welcome to Thin Places, the podcast channel of St. Aidan's Anglican Church in Nicholasville, Kentucky. I'm Father Lee, the pastor here at St. Aidan's, and I want to invite you to join me here each week as we join together to share common prayer, common worship, and common life. And just as the streams feed the trees on their banks till they pour in the seas, so may my life be to all those who share this wilderness road. We are continuing our discussion of patronage in our book, Misreading Scripture Through Individualist Eyes. And in this chapter, they take a look at the specific ways that language is used, especially in the New Testament, but also a little bit more broadly than that, the specific ways that language is used to communicate the basic cultural values of um, the ancient Near East um, and of the Greco-Roman world as well, and how understanding those can help us to better appreciate some of the ways uh, that Paul is discussing issues of salvation um, and sanctification, as well as help us to understand in a broader sense what it means for us as the church to be called to be a holy people, what it means for us as the church to belong to Jesus, to belong to a household of faith. All of those, all of those terms have specific meanings and values in the culture that they emerge from. And it's important for us to understand those values so that we can begin to appreciate in some new ways, perhaps, what Paul was communicating to us. And then hopefully we can draw some parallels out of those ideas. So I wanted to start uh, by talking about something called the three graces. Has anybody heard of the three graces? Sort of a little bit. They mention this in 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 the the chapter, but it's expanded more uh, by David De Silva, who wrote uh, a series of articles on on patronage, uh, and that he wrote a book that is called Honor, Patronage, Kinship, and Purity. Um, and I believe that we have a copy of that in our library here. So if you're interested in a deeper dive into these topics, meaning you know it's it, it's definitely a more scholastic work than. Uh, than, than the, the Richard and James book that we're reading right now. Uh, but if you're interested in that, he's, he, he, that, that book is here in the library. And then, of course, you, know, you can find electronic copies of it through uh, various libraries um, as well as online. Uh, but in that, he discusses this idea of, of the three graces. And there are lots of ways that this image of the three graces shows up in the ancient world. But the, the basic image is that you have three women who are dancing, usually with their hands linked or their arms linked, and they're dancing together in a circle. Um, and so any kind of understanding of what a, a tripartite union, if you have three ideas that are all blended together. So in the, in, in the, the early church, sometimes they would talk about uh, the, the three pillars or the three, the, the three core graces of, of Christianity, faith, hope, and love, are, are represented by these three graces who are constantly, you know, dancing together, that you can't separate any one of those things out in, in the midst of the church's life, because this is what our life is supposed to look like when it is enlivened 
by the Spirit of God. And so that same thing happens in the secular world as well. There are philosophers and all of these different guys that, that use that image of, of three people who are constantly in this dance together to, to, to help describe what it looks like when, when three concepts or three ideas are interlinked and interconnected and interdependent. Yes? Did anybody use that image to describe the Trinity? Uh, possibly. So, um, so one, one uh, concept that shows up fairly early in, uh, in Christianity is the idea of uh, the, the word means circle dancing, or, or uh, there are other ways of understanding that. Um, but, but especially St. Athanasius uses that word in, in a number of his writings to describe what the triune life of God looks like. Yeah, so that's that, that's one of those images that that at least in early Christianity, eventually when the when when the reading or the understanding at least access to the classics was lost, um, then then those kind of references drop out and and Christianity's discussion moves into you know more uh, I, I don't know like scholastic theological ways rather than being connected to the ancient world in that way, but especially in the early stuff you find those those images. Um, the, the image that I want to talk about tonight, it comes to us from Seneca. And Seneca describes the way that the patron-client, the patronage relationship worked in the ancient world. And he uses the image of the three graces to describe that. Now, I have very little artistic ability. And so instead of trying to draw three people who are, uh, you know, linked arms and dancing around, I drew three circles, because I can, in fact, trace a circle. Mm -hmm. uh, and so we have three circles on the board that are also, uh, they're, they're also interlinked, but it gives us that, that same kind of idea. So the way that he describes this is that you have, um, you have a gracious benefactor who, who provides some kind of, of a gift to somebody else. And there's somebody that is in the middle of that. There's a, there's a go-between. Uh, and it may look different from one situation to another but we're going to call this the the broker the, the the person who's mediating this relationship and then on the other side of this relationship is the gracious servant uh, but the way that he describes this in in his writings is he talks about the gracious benefactor uh, he describes this in terms of the gift that's being given the mediating broker could be an individual person, or it could simply be the person who is making the appeal. Sometimes the, the, the individual has to step into that role and make the, make the appeal to the other person. But, it's, but, but in some way, the gift is received by the, uh, by, by the person who needs what the other person can bestow. And then that person's response is one of gratitude. So this, this circular dance that he's describing, and... Seneca is writing in is it first century, is it BC? Greg, do you remember? Or Seneca right. AD? Um, I can't recall. AD, AD I think. Is Seneca yeah, AD? He, he was killed by Nero, right? Maybe. He, or he could be so. committed suicide because Nero was going to kill him. That sounds right. Yeah. So this, is, so this is a description of this kind of relationship that comes from a non-Christian source describing what this relationship looks like between a patron and uh, somebody who is receiving their patronage. So we might call them a client. We, we have our own sort of specialized language to refer to this. Again, we talked about this a little bit last week and week before. That kind of language doesn't typically show up here. 
what, what they understand is somebody gives a gift, somebody receives the gift, and the response after receiving the gift, the, the gift is gratitude. <laughs> we'll talk about the grift next week. <laughs> that's that's it. actually you know what we can talk about it tonight. So Seneca also <laughs> mentions this, and I say this because I want I, I want to point out that when Paul and the other Christians use this language, they're not using this language because they simply they're trying to describe to us exactly the way that this works. They're not describing to us. Um, this is how the divine economy functions, okay? What they're using is they're using language that they can understand and that people generally can understand. So for us, when we hear words like grace and when we hear words like faith, we immediately have theological definitions and values that we attach to those words. But those words did not have theological values in Paul's world. They had economic values. They had economic definitions. So one of the things that's interesting when we think about it in those terms, like this is the way economy works in, in, in the world of Rome. One of the things that Seneca says is be really careful who you choose as your uh, clients. Um, because there's a lot of people out there and a lot of them are sort of like, he describes them as those dogs that you see in vacant lots where they just bark at everybody when they come by and then they get a little bit of food from somebody and then they just keep on barking at everybody else. Mm -hmm. So he has this very dismissive attitude toward people. So he says, make sure that your clients are the right kinds of people, which is important for us to keep in the back of our mind because that also was the assumption in the world that this lived, that, that you had to make yourself attractive to a patron. Now, sometimes the, the patron, as we, as we discussed in our, in our discussion in kinship, sometimes the patron has an obligation because of the kinship relationship, all right? And so they don't get to pick whether or not they're going to take care of you because you're part of the kinship network, and they, they lose face, which we're going to talk about in the... Again, all of these things are so interconnected. When we get to the last part of the book, they talk about honor and shame and how that works, but we're also going to talk a little bit about it here because this is part of it. So some people have an obligation. They have clients that they can't get rid of. They can't do anything about them. Those are their clients. They have to take care of them. But in a larger sense, especially the people to whom Seneca is writing, when he's describing this kind of relationship, he's, he's saying, you need to be really, really careful because there's lots of people out there and they're just going to use you. And then when people look at you, they're going to say, oh, I know what kinds of people are his clients. They're not the right kinds of people. And you're going to end up losing face because you have the wrong kinds of clients. So make sure that when you distribute charis, when you distribute your graces to other people, that you give them to the right sorts of people. Now, I want you to contrast that with the language as it shows up in Paul. When Paul describes this, he describes exactly that, that we cannot possibly bring honor to the relationship with God. We don't have that in us. We are quite literally, the barking dogs in the vacant lot. And yet, what God does is give grace and something else. We're going to talk about that in just a second, okay? I'm getting ahead of myself here. Right. Died 65 AD. What's that? Died 65 AD. 65 AD. So that's, yeah, that's right in the middle of Nero's reign. Yeah. So, yeah, that, that, that lines up exact. <clears throat> so in this discussion of the graces... One of the ways that we can think about this, one of the ways that we can kind of 
begin to understand how this works in the context of biblical literature is if we understand that the gracious benefactor in the story of Christianity is God. Now, quick pause, because oftentimes when we write the word God, what we mean is Father. We don't mean that here. What we mean is that God is the benefactor. God's self, the triune God, is the gracious benefactor. Okay? And it's important to say that because the mediating broker is Jesus. It's Jesus who is both the gift and the one who receives the gift. He's the one that goes between us and between God. Now, he's uniquely able to do that because, of course, Jesus is exactly God and us. He is both patron and client at the same time. And so as the mediating broker, he gathers us up and brings us home. And so the grateful servant is both us and the church. We're going to talk about that in, in just a second, because there is a sense in which this language about brokerage, this language about patronage, is still describing individual relationships. They happen within a collectivist society, but it still is a relationship between two people or an enlarging of households between two people, okay? So there is a sense in which I am a grateful servant, right? Jesus is the one who has brought the gift that God gives, the, the welcome home, the gift of salvation, that I have been rescued from whatever peril I, I, I was under through sin and death and the devil. I have been rescued out of that. And so I have a responsibility of being gracious, of being, of, of being grateful, of being thankful. But it's also about us, because God doesn't only rescue me. God rescues us. And so this description isn't something that's just about who God is and what God is doing to me. It's also about who God is and what God is accomplishing within the context of the church as a whole. So it's not just an individual thing, but it's also not only a corporate thing. It happens both ways at the same time. Does that make sense? Okay. I want to make sure that we're all kind of on the same page here. Because the thing that we get stuck with, and I, I mentioned this last week, but I'll, I'll mention it again. And I know that I've mentioned this in sermons and, and discussions before. But this language that we use in, in Scripture of, of grace and faith is exactly that language, that when the patron gives a gift, that gift is called charis, okay? The three graces are called the, the charites. The, the, the three graces are just called charis. It's the three charises, the three gifts, the three graces. That, that idea of grace is exactly this relationship. Paul is grabbing this concept and bringing it into his teaching about what God has accomplished in Christ for us. And the response that the grateful servant gives is fides, is pistis. The response that we give is faithfulness. All right? And we can describe that faithfulness in a couple of different ways. It, it means more than trusting in God, but it doesn't mean less than that. Okay, so my response to God giving me uh, the, the gift of salvation is there is, at least in Paul's world, there's an assumption that, that, that I have an obligation to now bring honor to his name. Now, 
we, especially as Protestants, like the hair on the back of our neck sort of stands up. We're like, whoa, now this sounds like we're adding something. We're not adding anything to because the relationship is something that's already established. But my responsibility is to bring honor to his name. And the way, primarily the way that that happens in Paul's world is it involves you proclaiming his goodness. Now think about that in terms of the way that Paul describes the life of the church. The, the primary response that we as, as, the, as the grateful servants are supposed to have is to proclaim the goodness of our patron. That's the, that, that's the number one, the primary way that you respond. Now, it may be like in the, in the bread maker story that, that the authors have in the book. It may totally be that God is going to have specific things for you to do. That absolutely happens. It happens in every patronage relationship. God has specific things for you to do. He has specific things for his church to do. He has specific things for our congregation to do. That's totally a part of that relationship. But it's not any different than when I need the trash taken out and I, uh, you know, and, and being the, the father of the household, I direct one of the children to go and gather up the trash and take it outside, right? Like, I'm not doing this. Mom is busy. It's your job to take care of this. And then, and, and then they do it not because, you know, they, they fear wrath, although, you know, maybe I, mm-hmm. I am in control of the Wi-Fi code. No. Uh, but, <laughs> but generally they do it because there's a relationship. They, they understand that we're taking care of each other and that this is part of that, that, that I'm taking care of. And in response, I do the things that I'm asked to do. And I trust that I'm not going to be asked to do things that I'm not able to accomplish that are unsafe like that all of those kind of things that are that are unspoken in normal you know and again we're talking about the way that a healthy family functions there obviously are ways that this goes wrong it goes wrong in churches it goes wrong in households it went wrong in the ancient world all right we it's, we, never, not gone wrong. it's never not gone wrong okay and the authors I, I love when the authors point this out every once in a while they'll, they'll step in and say listen this isn't about this is this is a description of who God is and how God works, and this is it. This is the this is saying, look at the way that God takes culture in the ancient world and uses that as a way to redeem the people in that context. And what are the ways that we can understand how God is at work and how He is continuing to be at work redeeming us right now? How how can we how can we use what we've learned to sort of expand our imaginations, to understand who God is in a deeper way, in a fuller way, uh, and to appreciate what He's what what He is and what He's doing for us in the in, in the context of that relationship. All right. So do we have any questions about that kind of Chorus, grace, patronage, dynamic. All right. I, there was a ton of really good info in this chapter. So I, I encourage you, if you didn't read it yet, go back and, and read chapter five because it is absolutely wonderful. He, they go on a little bit of a tangent here talking about shepherd language because still in the Middle East, that language of a shepherd is used to describe this kind of a relationship. So we typically are more comfortable with the familial relationship, right? There's a father and there's children in a household because we kind of understand that it's not it's not a one to one comparison because we live in you know kind of you know a post nuclear family world, whatever this place is that we live now. But we we don't really understand it in terms of agriculture. But in places where there's agriculture, the way that they describe this relationship is a shepherd. And so when Jesus is talking in, in John's gospel about being the good shepherd, the way that he uses that language is particularly pointed because he's describing this. He's saying the shepherds that you guys have are bad. You have bad shepherds. These are the wrong kind of shepherds. They don't, they, they don't protect the sheep. 
They're not, they're, they're not giving grace. They're not giving gifts to you. They're not giving the gift of protection and belonging and provision. They're not doing any of those things. They're just using you and abusing you. Uh, you, need, you need a good shepherd. I'm the good shepherd. Jesus steps in, in, into that role. But they mention that even, in, even today in the Middle East, people will often describe somebody who, who has the role in a community of being, uh, of, of being a patron, will describe them as a, a shepherd in, in a particular area. That one about the taxi driver yep. complaining yes. about yeah. how the shepherds weren't shepherding. The shepherds weren't shepherding. Yep, that was a fantastic uh, anecdote that they shared. Yeah, I thought it was interesting how it talks about the idea of patron client and then the guy was like I, I was like we don't really have a word for it it's yeah. just like what we do and like at first it seems kind of like strange mm-hmm. to me I, in the same way that it seems strange to him but i was thinking like you know sort of so many things that we do that we don't really think about what the name is for like like if someone asked me what is the concept of not cheating on your papers like mm-hmm. like what is, what is mm-hmm. the word that you have for that like, i don't know being being non-cheat non-cheatering uh, <laughs> being studious maybe but it's not like a word that i think right about we, have, time. we have a negative word to describe right. when you cheat but not mm-hmm. the 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 act of not cheating right and it's like, it's like, it's, it's <laughs> like just the thing that things... have is integrity but then you have to have mm-hmm. qualifiers on top of that to talk about right type. But it's, yeah so it's just like the idea of like the, the things that are just normal that we do in our lives we don't really have like these terms that apply yeah. to them but i <laughs> Yeah, just to try to think about that in terms of my culture versus like the culture that has that and mm-hmm. just how it's like the air you breathe there. Yeah, I, I kind of thought it was weird that he was asking for the word for a complex subject. I'm like, even in, <laughs> even here where we love to classify everything. Right. Taxonomy is a big deal for we us. We don't have a word for a lot of... We have a bunch of words that we can rearrange to help describe. Mm-hmm. It's like, you, you may have a few phrases you have to go through <laughs> instead of a word. But we have the word patronage because there's this, there are these things that we can identify as not something we're used to. Mm-hmm. And so we can draw a circle around them. Whereas they look at all these things and there's no separators in their head for Oh wow! This is a thing. Uh, this is a behavior that feels like I should describe it more. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, even things like, you know, I make I make eye contact with somebody as I walk down the street. That that's so ingrained into so much of our culture right. that it goes without being said. But it, there might be somebody who says, "Oh, this is what friendliness looks like." Mm-hmm. You know, or the courtesy mm-hmm. and. We don't actually have a word that describes the person. Who the expectation says, oh, that you, you should at least give somebody a half a smile. If even if you don't say something, mm-hmm. you should give even complete strangers at least half a smile if you mm-hmm. make eye contact. Right. Or a nod. Or... or a nod. There has to be some sort of yeah. affirmation that I see you, mm-hmm. and and that's good. We see one another. <laughs> where, like... where in the country is that considered a threat? Right. <laughs> It almost seems like there's an idea that we have to have terms for formalized relationships, but then there's like a deeper form of relationship mm-hmm. between people that is that is we don't have terms for, and it's not formalized because it's it's so much more deeply ingrained in our way of being. Mm-hmm. So we don't need to have it formalized because it's just obvious to everyone. Mm-hmm. Can you think of a particular place in Scripture as we've been talking about these patron-client relationships where? you can think of a place where you, you're, you're, as you've been reading this, you're thinking, you know, this sounds a lot like that story that I remember reading. Well, I mean, I, I, I think you see that in Philemon. 
in Philemon. Where politics yeah. takes the sort of place of like the, the patron relationship mm-hmm. to Philemon, mm-hmm. um, and as well as sort of the, the, the mediator between Philemon as the patron mm-hmm. relationship. To so De Silva has an article that is, it's it, it's kind of long. It's it's like thirty or forty pages uh, that is called Patronage and Reciprocity. And he's got at least a page or a page and a half in that that's just talking about patronage as it functions in the book of Philemon. Yeah. It's absolutely fascinating read. You could literally skip the entire article and just just search, just just do a word search for Philemon and read that section. And it was it, it was beautiful. It was so cool. Looking at all of the different ways that you we when we read the stories aren't trained to look for those words and those connections. We we. We don't make the assumption that that these people are stepping into roles that are normal in their culture. It's normal for somebody to move between patron and broker and 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 an appellant or client, whatever we want to call them, to move between all of those throughout the course of a day or a week. They're 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 going to be in all of those things because they don't see themselves as in in our world. We we're so fixated on like function. We have this function, right? Your first question is, what do you do? Because that tells me what kind of person you are and who you are. But in 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 the majority world, it doesn't work that way. You're you're moving constantly through society, and you have different functions and different kinds of relationships at different levels. Uh, and so we're not trained to look for that in in books uh, and and in in scripture. When people are, you know, it's it, it was like when I read this the first time and reread the story of Joseph. I'm like, nobody ever pointed those things out. That has completely changed the way that I encounter that story and see what God is at work doing in spite of all of the other things that are happening. Um, well, that and the whole story of of. Moses as the head of the mm-hmm. tribe of Israel. Mm-hmm. It's like he literally was constantly being the broker, right, between God and God's chosen people. Mm-hmm. So much so that it did actually get formalized with the covenant. Mm-hmm. Uh, the prophets think yeah. of Jeremiah especially, but you have the king who is the the head of the of the whole network. You know, the, the king is the one who arranges all the people to give the things around, mm-hmm. and the king is the one who can get favors, but everybody owes the king X, Y, and Z. Right. And the king, and the king also has the relationship with God, where God is supposed, you know, God blesses the king, God gives the king his position, mm-hmm. but also the, you know, and the people have reciprocity where they, where they give God sacrifice. Mm-hmm. And, and the prophet is the one who comes in and offends that all by saying, hey, <clears throat> hey, God, God is not your gracious benefactor here. You are, you know, you're being ungrateful. You are not at all returning to God what's expected in your, you know, the way you treat other people, in the way you worship other gods, in the way that you do all of these things. Mm-hmm. And, and, and the prophet's the one who, who comes in and says, None of the you know none of these relationships work like you think they do because mm. you're simply saying this is how my this is how my relationship works therefore God is like everybody else right so in that same article from from De Silva he has um, a fantastic explanation of this so I thought we could look at this together tonight so this is Luke chapter seven uh, we're going to read the story about. Jesus healing the centurion's servant. 
And I want you to pay attention. Listen for that language about patronage and appeal and brokerage, okay? After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, Jesus entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him the elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far away from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourselves, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you. But say the word and let my servant be healed, for I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. So if we're looking at this story, there is a Roman, right? This is a, a pagan who is a local benefactor. And someone in his household is ill. And so he knows about Jesus' reputation, but he also knows that he is an outsider. He doesn't have a connection with Jesus. He doesn't know who Jesus is. So instead, he asks the synagogue who he has already done something for, people that he's already helped, he goes to his clients and he says to them, I want you to broker a healing from this holy man, which is what they do. So they demonstrate loyalty by not doing anything. They just go to Jesus and tell him about this friend of theirs who has a problem. Listen, we know that he's a pagan. We know that he's a Roman, but... This man is a leader, and he, has, he is a friend to everybody here. He's the one that built our synagogue for us so that we can read the Torah together. They attest his character, which is what the client is supposed to do. Their, their job is to make sure that people know who the person is and what kind of person they are. And so Jesus hears that appeal, and he decides to grant the favor that was requested. But when he gets near to the centurion's house, what happens? Broker. He sends a broker, right? Yeah. He immediately sends friends of his. <laughs> yeah, there's that word, friends, that shows up. Uh, and, and he interrupts Jesus. He demonstrates his own humility. He puts himself in a position of humility by sending a broker again to Jesus and says, Look, you don't need to, you don't need to come here. And Jesus does what? Jesus says, I tell you, not in Israel have I found such faith. Not even in Israel have I found such faith. Faith, faithfulness, trust. I mention that, and De Silva doesn't point this out. I point this out because we are Anglicans, and we tend to be high church Anglicans. And in the high church Anglican tradition, we have a series of prayers that we pray as we are 
uh, preparing for communion. We have a series of prayers that we pray as we are worshiping together. And then as we come forward to the altar to receive communion, we say a series of prayers. Now, on a normal Sunday, I say these prayers quietly. While, while you guys are singing the, uh, the Agnus Dei, I say these prayers quietly at, at the altar. When we're doing a high mass, we, say, we, we all say these prayers together. And the prayer is exactly the words that the centurion said. Lord, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof, but only speak the word and my soul shall be healed. My servant shall be healed. The same words that he speaks are, are so indicative of what we are supposed to be that Christians historically, especially in the West, have taken those exact words and says, as we are about to approach the Holy of Holies, these words are the words that we want to stand in front of us. These words that, that help us to understand who we are. They put us in that mindset and they do that even before we know what patronage and client did. And we, we don't know what any of those things are. And yet, when I encountered that in the liturgy the first time, just like when I encountered the, the prayer of humble access the first time, I realized I'm, this language is placing me in a position where I understand my own position and also where I understand the profound love that God has when, when he invites us into his presence in that way. And, and that same kind of thing is illustrated in, in this passage that even when we don't know about the patronage and, and what it means to be a client and how brokers work, that even without knowing that, we can still appreciate that. But how much richer is it when we see that not only is God sending a gift to us and inviting us to himself, there's, there's not just sort of a covenant where, where God reaches out to us and brings us back, but God himself becomes the one who makes peace, where God himself steps into that role and invites us. He becomes both the client and the patron at the same time in the person of the broker. And when we see that, it, it, it's almost as though my, my imagination comes alive. And I start to, I start to imagine, well, what are the other ways that, that I can have that kind of relationship with God? Like, like if, if the job of a patron is supposed to be to bestow grace, and I look at my life, I just see God's grace constantly, constantly. And if I look at the ancient world like this, and I see, well, what are clients supposed to look like? As soon as, as, as he has a need, they, the, the clients immediately go, not just one of them, but all of them go out to find a solution to, to this problem. When, when the patron has a need, the clients immediately go out, not because they feel like, oh, well, if I don't do this, then, then the centurion is going to be mad at me. They do it because they have gratitude. They do it because they care about who he is. And so they go and they try to meet his needs in a way that they are capable of doing because he's not going to he's not going to go and do that. And what are the ways that I can look at the the brokenness that is in the world around me and say where are the places where I can appeal to God on behalf of this thing that's happening? Or where are the places where people need to hear about the incredible world-shattering love of God and how can I be uh, be bring a testimony to that? How can I be somebody who is making making that kind of a proclamation to other people? It changes that dynamic from like, oh well, this is what you have to do because you've got to you know check the little scorecard and you've got we've got lists and all of those things. It's not about that anymore. It's it's so much it's so much deeper and there's there, there's the the relationship is so so much more rich when we start to appreciate like look at look at all of these these ways that God is not just 
sticking a new label on us and saying, you know, you used to be a sinner and then I scratched that out and now you're my son. And, you know, all of those kind of, you know, hokey things that, that we did at Bible camp or whatever. But that God is, is actually inviting us into a household. And I can say, well, what would it look like if I was in a healthy relationship with everyone in my family and I and, and my father needed something? Well, I, I, would, I would go out and I'd do that. So how can I do that? And how can I be attentive to the world around me? How can I have my eyes open watching for the places where I can be proclaiming God's grace or I can be, I can be interceding uh, for God's mercy? Instead of just sort of going day by day and moment by moment through, through these, these different ways of, of you know, living in, in the world around us where we're not, where we're not paying attention to that, but instead to, to sort of like we talked about when, when we talked about the, 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 three, the three interlocking circles of, of the Lord's table and our home table and, and the table in our neighbor's home. Uh, that, that it's about being attentive to where is Christ present right now, and how can I tend to Jesus's presence? How can I minister to Christ and minister with Christ right now in this moment? To walk into a room and say, where is Jesus at work in this space right now, and how can I join him in that work? And how can I attest to that work? How can I proclaim that work? Because sometimes that's all that needs to that, that's all that needs to happen. I just need to recognize and and tell other people that Jesus is here in in the midst of this. Uh, or sometimes to 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 say you know that this is this is a place where I can see that that God is at work and there needs to be grace and I can intercede. Or sometimes I can intervene. I may be called on to to be somebody who intervenes, but almost always I would say always always we're called to be people who who intercede because that's the step back that we have from from this is sort of what we what we mentioned kind of at the beginning where patrons are supposed to look for the people who are going to make them look the best but god doesn't do that he doesn't collect clients to himself he doesn't invite people into his into his household who make him look good just the opposite really <laughs> he invites all of us he he you know the 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 people who 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 look good tend to sort of walk the other way because they don't feel like they need god and so the 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 banquet doors are sort of flung open wide if we're you know using the the metaphor that Jesus uses in the parable and he gathers everyone in off of the street and brings them into his home and sits them down at his table but at the same time i have this opportunity to communicate the kind of grace that god has that is boundless and endless because in Jesus's world in the in in, in the world of of the new testament the, the the resources of the centurion here are obviously substantial. I mean, this is a person who who the the local community said, "Well, he built our synagogue for us." Uh, you know that that the, the, they're they're substantial, but they're not endless. And the same thing is true about his honor and his reputation. None of those things are endless, but they are endless with our patron. They are endless with God. And so there's never a point where I can say, oh, this is too much. I can't, I, I can't intercede on, on behalf of, of, you know, the, the folks that live across the street from me, because that's just, God's just too overwhelmed right now to handle that. I can't intercede on his behalf. I can't, I can't presume to do that. We're supposed to presume to do that. We're supposed to continually go to God and say, God, these people need you. God, these people need you. And sometimes God is going to say, okay, then go and do it. And we have to brace ourselves for that. <laughs> but, but sometimes it's just a matter of, 
opening our eyes and saying, God, I want to see your grace at work. I want to see the gift of your love and your power and your healing and your presence in these places, in these situations, in these relationships. I want to see that happen. All right. I soapboxed myself right out of time. <laughs> There's another Dude, article that I was going to... Yeah, the other one... Well, so sometimes when we use that word grace, we get we, we get sort of locked into like one or two definitions of that. And I found this really great article from... Uh, who did I find it from? I wrote it down. Renew. Renew.org had this great article uh, where he talked about all of the different ways that, that grace works. That grace isn't just... It's not just, it is a gift, but it's not just a gift. So it's something that goes to us and is around us and is above us and under us and before us. and Like all of the various ways that we can understand how grace is at work, that it, it fills us with life and energy and it draws us forward and it pursues us from behind and it, 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 it strengthens us up and it calls us into other things. It's, it's always there. All of these ways that God's presence that God's gifts are all around us all the time and so often we get fixated on like well I'm saved and that's the end of that that's the end of God's grace but it's not the end of God's grace it's so much more than that it's it's being called into a new way of being human is the way that N.T. Wright talks about that right that we're we're being called into a completely new kind of reality but the other stuff was also important to talk about so that was that was all that that side of the board was going to be was just sort of expanding what we mean when we talk about what what grace is and how grace works it's almost like st patrick's breastplate mm-hmm. it is it's exactly like st patrick's breastplate yeah it's it, yeah christ b- before me and behind me and around me all the time yeah i also like how in this chapter they said you know it's really good that people are starting to acknowledge uh, that faith means more than just like believe yeah. that allegiance or, and or loyalty mm-hmm. is a big part of it. It's like just, just don't get hyper focused on that and just and pull that one aspect of faith right. to the forefront and say this is all of it because then it'll be just as wrong as when we did that with trust. <laughs> right, and that was why that that was actually what led me yeah. into in, into this. I was like, well, what are some uh, some better what are what's a more holistic way? Because like I would always recommend Matthew Bates books to you guys. Like uh, the what what is what is it? Gospel Allegiance, that was his, his newest one they came out with, or Salvation by Allegiance Alone. Those books are really, really good, but they, they're, they're not all of the story. This is all of the story, and you know the, the, that it's grace constantly around us and, and, and everywhere. It's St. Patrick's Breastplate. It's, it's this is Christ, and we are inundated in it. And so it is allegiance, but allegiance is—and and I, I, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to, you know— trash talk Matthew Bates stuff either because he also says this in his books that that the the whole point of allegiance is it's not just I make a claim and that that's it it's that I'm giving myself over to this thing I'm 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 giving myself over to something and in this case it's going to be God because it's it, it's God who has that right without trust either, uh, right so. it, it begins with trust and then everything expands from there uh, but it start, it starts with trust and and that's more than just making you know ma- making uh, an, an intellectual assent just saying just claiming to believe in something is different than putting our trust in something else and that's what that faith looks like it looks like trust and it looks like action and all of those things together hence with our translations of James faith without works is dead exactly they're saying the same thing we just like you said, we, we translate into theologically loaded language. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's like, but after this, James makes a lot more sense. Mm-hmm. Because, it, it, you know, because what James is doing is a lot of times our problem is that we put more 
weight on James than James puts on his own words. And we misunderstand what it is that Paul is saying when he says that we are saved by grace through faith, that we're, we're saved uh, by a gift because we put our allegiance in, in God. And because we put our allegiance in God, this is what allegiance looks like. And then James explains to us, this is what it looks like. But they're not, they're not competing. They're, they're complementing. They're yeah. saying the same thing. They're just doing it in a different way. And they're doing it culturally in two different contexts. Because as we've seen, patronage in Jesus's world, in, in, the, in, in, in the Middle East, doesn't always look exactly like it does in, in Rome and Turkey and Greece. And, and, the, and Jerusalem Jews and diaspora might have a slightly different cultural understandings than those people who say like ex-pagans in Asia Minor. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Well, that's good. So next week we're going to talk more about the middleman. We're going to talk about what brokerage looks like and and how that how that functions in the world today, and especially how that helps us to understand what's going the on. One in we should scripture. eliminate because that efficiency. Right. We got to get efficiency. We got to cut out the middleman. Like, don't cut unless, out the middleman. That's how the world works. Family discount. Right. Yes. <laughs> if if I get that. Middlemen are great when they give you the discount. <laughs> Be eliminated when they cost me more money. Right. <laughs> or time or whatever that, that, that limited currency is. <laughs>